Today is Wednesday. It's June 14th, 2023. It's 2.40 in the afternoon. Today is also Flag Day. It's also Donald Trump's birthday. And the wordle word today is crime. Hey, I'm John Williams, and this is the Mincing Rascals podcast. You can hear portions of this broadcast on WGN Radio Saturday nights at 8 o'clock. Listen to me weekdays from 10 to 2. I'm Austin Berg from the Illinois Policy Institute. You can listen to my podcast, America's Talking. Uh, my name is Mark Jacob. I'm a former Metro editor at the Chicago Tribune. Just a plain old freelance writer now. Who's working on a fascinating book that we won't tell you anything about right now. Because <laughs> later, later. Boy, else, you won't be able to get me to stop talking about it. Well, point. he's paranoid that if we tell you about the book, that you'll run out and write a book about the right. very same thing and right. get it published Except- before him. Exactly. And that's not that's not an irrational view. That's actually I run into that all the time with authors. They go, but I don't want to talk about it. I go, trust me. Jacob has spent years researching yeah. this. So do, but, it's, it's not like you're going to get ahead of him. It wasn't, oh, well, yeah, but artificial intelligence could get ahead of me. I mean, they, you could just, it, it could in 30 minutes do what I've taken two and a half years. <laughs> yeah, but it would sound nah. like an eighth grade term paper. You know, Abraham Lincoln was a president from Illinois. He wore a black hat. <laughs> I just watched the movie um, Synecdoche, New York this weekend. Have you guys ever seen that? Yeah. Charlie Kaufman movie. Yeah. With Philip Seymour Hoffman. And so he gets a MacArthur Genius grant, and then he basically makes a play with actors of everybody in his own life that he works on for like 30 years. So I'm imagining Mark is writing sort of a story about all the things (laughs) of his life. We're going to talk about Donald Trump here in about 14 seconds, but just since we're on this tangent, I had a doctor on, child psychologist today. He said that he was recently at a meeting at the University of Illinois in Champaign, where computers are famous, and they were talking about artificial intelligence used in psychology, where you would talk to an AI screen, and it would do some sort of therapy with you, some talk therapy. He said that the avatar that would appear would change to a shape and hue that you could most relate to. So if I was a person of color, maybe I'm going to talk to an avatar that's uh, that, that shares my hue, black, brown, white, whatever. And maybe I've got spiky hair. Maybe I've dyed it purple. Well, then maybe the avatar could have spiky purple hair and earrings too, or tattoos. It would sort of put you in the most comfortable zone. And then you would talk to a computer program and it would feedback predicted sentences to you and that would be a kind of therapy that would start the process. Eventually, human beings would oversee it. He said, this isn't here yet, but that's what they were talking about. There's already great studies out now on chat GPT-like large language models giving people diagnoses for illnesses and, tr- and acting like a doctor. And the the gap between chat GPT and a regular, it was better on diagnosing almost everything really? based on based on symptoms that were given to it. And the biggest difference, and this was what was most shocking to me to what you're t- talking about, the biggest difference in chat GPT being better than the average doctor was bedside manner. <laughs> well, that I'm not that surprised about. Well, the, the computer was had limitless time, but it can't really. It was also sweeter, kind. Well, nicer. Yeah, it's not stressed. It doesn't have to get to somebody in room 14. I guess you know, but a, fr- a friend of mine who's actually quite accomplished uh, read just ordered some uh, AI uh, bot to write a mini biography of himself, and uh, it gave him a Pulitzer Prize that he never earned. And it, it also credited him with helping 
create Millennium Park, which he didn't. So, <laughs> so I, I think there's a ways to go, and and I'm 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 just suspicious that AI, at least in the short term, is going to get where people think it's going to get. Maybe in the uh, short term, yeah. I mean, you know, it's just I do think that there is something about. Uh, that a sentence written by a computer feels like a sentence written by a computer versus uh you know there's a human touch there's a, just a yeah. there's this there's just this warmth and you know just lack of maybe it's even imperfection that makes something feel human and therefore kind of more comforting or more welcome to the, to the recipient true to chat gpt would be that then you would tell the computer, hey, I didn't win the Pulitzer Prize, and then it would argue with you, oh, yes, you did. <laughs> yes, you did. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, exactly. you, why are you lying to me? Yes, you did. There's an amazing uh, lecture. It doesn't have that many views on YouTube, and it's like the best lecture I've heard on ChatGPT. It's this economist named Tyler Cowen, who has a great podcast also, uh, and it was with the London School of Economics. And he's an economics professor. He does tons of research in his day job. But the whole lecture is just about how to think about using it in your everyday life and how it might change things. And he, he, the heuristic that he used was treat it like a, like an, a, an endless amount of research assistance mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. a dog. So you need to encourage it and talk to it in a way that says, you know, not just maybe write something about this, but write something about this in a way that a brilliant economist might write it or in a way that a really empathetic psychotherapist may talk about it. And it's amazing. And it's astounding the difference between, you know, someone trying to just punch it in the face to get it to do better. And you talking like a, like a pet. No, I can see how it could learn and and get, and get better Mm -hmm. at that. You know, when I was, uh, I was very lucky many years ago to do a little mini fellowship in Japan, and I interviewed Masahiro Mori, who invented the concept of the Uncanny Valley. Are you familiar with the Uncanny Valley? No, I'm not. That is the idea that as androids, he was a robot scientist, a theorist, and uh, when androids become more and more lifelike, uh, human beings like the androids as they approach being coming lifelike, but when they get so close to lifelike that you can't tell the difference and don't know whether they're human or not, that creates something that he, he termed the uncanny valley where the human being reacts with revulsion and, and fear that, 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 because you don't know what you know, you're fine with an Android that seems like a, you know, a humanoid computer, a humanoid robot until you're not sure whether it's, it's a person or not. And then you get scared and you don't know. And, and it's just a theorist. It wasn't really like based on data or anything, but it was this interesting theory he came up with many years ago. There's the best example that people use that I like of that is the movie Polar Express, the animated movie, mm-hmm. where they look yeah. just almost like people, right. but they're not enough like it, so that something is creepy about it. And that's right. like Valley. Right, right. And 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 you can get even closer than that. But yes, I that is actually pretty close to you know, to human. And, and, and I just feel like that human beings need one. They want to know when computers are, are, yeah, right. are talking to them rather than, than people. Yeah, I want a portal on their forehead or something, you know, just a <laughs> right. USB. You know, and I talked to this child psychologist about the possibility that chat GPT would replace or enhance the human beings that do what he does for a living. He said, I don't think that's such a bad thing. He said, we're not there. And I observed that I'm not against using science to help with biomedical problems. Why would I be against using data or technology to help me with psychological medical problems? 
Yesterday, the former president, Donald Trump, was arrested and criminally charged in a 37-count indictment. At its simplest, according to Special Prosecutor Jack Smith, Donald Trump lied about moving some boxes. Had he not lied about them, some with documents he was not permitted to have, he would not have had his fingerprint taken yesterday in a Miami courthouse. A crowd maybe as large as 5,000 people, mostly supporters, gathered outside. A couple hundred were able to see Donald Trump in a small restaurant where he stopped and prayed on his way back to his plane. Two candidates for president, Nikki Haley and Vivek Ramaswamy, have said that if Donald Trump is convicted and one of them becomes elected, they will pardon him. And the audience later that day, Illinois' Darren Bailey was in the Bedminster, New Jersey crowd where the president spoke about what had happened earlier. Bailey ran unsuccessfully against J.B. Pritzker for governor last year and might be vying for a seat in Congress. So here we are. What's next? Delaying tactics by Trump's legal team and then almost certainly a trial against what looks like hard to beat evidence well i mean considering that what how lucky they seem to have gotten in the draw of the judge um i think this it could be a long time before this uh case comes to trial who's could the they know? who's the they that got lucky oh the trump people the trump the, the team trump got lucky by having an alien cannon you know their favorite judge uh take the case and you know i don't i don't think there's anything nefarious about it it was luck of the draw but she was ruling for them, you know, in, in matters of the special master and various other preliminary matters in this case and got reversed, you know, twice in embarrassing fashion by an appellate court. And, you know, she has hardly any trial experience. She was one of the Trump judge appointees that people were wondering why the hell he, you know, named someone like that unless it was because they were a loyalist. So I, I think that she will. I mean, who knows? She could just straighten up and fly right. There have been a lot of Trump appointees who have made good rulings. Uh, there was a good ruling in the Supreme Court with two Trump with a Trump appointee, uh, uh, Brett Kavanaugh, just a, a week ago on uh, the Alabama voting rights case. Yeah, so, it, yeah. so I'm not I'm not assuming that just because you're a Trump appointee, you're going to do bad things. But I, my prediction would be that this case moves very slowly, and uh, that. Uh, he gets charged with more serious things even than this before, uh, you know, the year's out. In Alabama, for instance. No, well, no, I mean in Georgia. Uh, pardon uh, me, yeah, yeah, yeah. In yeah, Atlanta, Fulton yeah, County. Yeah, yeah. Fulton County, possibly, or, or maybe Jack Smith's, uh, the special counsel on the uh, January 6th case. Uh, either of those two things, to me, are, are probably even more serious than what he's been charged with now. And, uh, and, and, and they could also move faster be, unless, you know, unless you get the same kind of draw of a judge. Yeah. It's interesting to me, Austin, how grave all of this sounds when, as I said a moment ago, it, it's the business. <laughs> you had the box here and then you moved it over there. And then the attorney said, we've got all the stuff here and we didn't. And Trump knew it. But all of a sudden, this has taken on a lot of gravity. The president's supporters are saying this is trivial, and you didn't do this to Hillary Clinton, and you didn't do this to Joe Biden. It's hard to predict what happens next, but I agree that because, almost because of the cartoonish nature of what he actually did, you can see him now brush off the charges in a similarly cartoonish fashion, right? It's just boxes saying indict the word indictment in the craziest way I've ever heard anyone say that word. Oh, I missed it. How did he run that? I did everything right and they indicted me. These were stored so recklessly 
in a bedroom and bathrooms and in ballrooms and then spoken about so recklessly and telling people this is really highly classified stuff. And like Kid Rock is telling Rolling Stone he's seeing all of these documents at Mar-a-Lago. It is it's Trumpian the way like the charges themselves. And I think that actually um, in some sense, yeah, you you almost wish the the Fulton County case had come before this because it the evidence is so much less cartoonish it's a phone call it's sort of an intimidation it's something that people understand is maybe wrong whereas this it's maybe easier to dismiss it also comes on the heels of uh um, alvin bragg's charges which i think were rightly criticized as a bit slapdash but at the same time you have a place like national review um you know very conservative um was never super team trump but they have a really good piece i thought recently called the trump indictment is damning and they go through kind of all the whataboutisms and then just get to the nuts and bolts of the case and this is a conservative publication talking about this so i thought that that's a good read for context on the right you know the the documents case though is i mean he's he's if you believe the evidence as laid out in the indictment, he's so obviously guilty. They just have him so red-handed now. It is almost cartoonish how red-handed they have him. They might as well have caught him with holding a sign that says, I stole documents. I mean, it's, it's and there's that value to it as far as if you want justice, he's guilty of this, apparently, according to all the evidence that we've seen. So it's not going to be one of those things where you know people think he's railroaded. Now, that with the argument you're getting from people on the right, some of them, is yeah, he's guilty, but you shouldn't charge him anyway. That called you know the whole Mike Pence thing, where where no, uh, no one's above the law, but there these are unique circumstances. In other words, someone's above the law, is what he's saying when he says that. And I think that's a really dangerous thing. And I think I think even equating this to the Hillary stuff or the Biden stuff or the Pence stuff is 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 both stupid and reckless and and really minimizes what Trump did. I mean, this and, and Kevin McCarthy with his well bathrooms, bathroom doors have locks thing is just I mean, it's just laughable. I mean, it's like if this is the House speaker. This is this is the third in line. You know, saying something that outrageously stupid, you know, that number one bathroom doors locked from the inside. And, <laughs> uh, and you think somebody can't pick a lock? What are yeah. you talking about? We're talking we're talking, you know, anyone could. But, you know, and, we don't have any evidence that anything came of it. Like, f- well, you know, I hear, but, John, here's the thing. The intelligence services and the U.S. intelligence services, if things came out of this, they're not going to tell you. They don't want you to know if, if there was if damage was done. They don't want you to know how much damage was done, so they're it, it, because that would cause even more damage. So, so that's a that's the kind of trick bag we're in here. Maybe so. Maybe so. Is that we're not going to find out. We're never going to find out how much damage this did. That's a tougher argument to make that we don't know how grave the secrets were, because I think then that would also apply to other mishandling of classified documents or reckless hand, handling or mm-hmm. not enough security in those other cases. And there could be grave consequences as a result of that. Right. I mean, but you but you don't have to, in order to convict him, you don't have to prove that there was any damage done. Right. And the, and the, right. the, the thing is, the thing that I would say also is if you are working for a government that's allied with the United States and you have intelligence, sensitive intelligence, are you more likely or less likely to share it with the United States after these revelations? I would argue less. And that is damage in itself. I think that, that our allies are scared of us now. 
And and so I think with regardless of whether you can point to one specific bit of intelligence being leaked one specific way and hurting the U.S. in some certain way, generally, you can say that the credibility of United States intelligence services has been diminished. I've never been the president of the United States, but I was a little amazed at how much stuff he had and how carelessly it seemed to be just stacked up like my basement is better organized and we have those good plastic tubs you get at target and we put stuff in there these are saggy boxes that are collapsing on their own weight and paper boxes right so right it's cardboard and i'm thinking so if if these are your personal mementos it's surprising that you don't care for them better and if these are government documents that you're spiriting away you'd really think that you would be careful with it but he was none of that he has since said that he just hadn't gone through all of them one wonders if that'll be part of his defense that the things that maybe the government discovered were things he himself didn't realize were there you know i can play this game of tennis with you guys all day long and it would be more helpful, I think, to the court of public opinion if we could say, and therefore, look what happened. And there's no look what happened. I take your point, Mark. We may never know. Maybe we shouldn't know. Maybe even it doesn't matter. The fact that they well, existed in his bathroom is well, all we but need. But here's an interesting angle of all that is that is that the documents – that they cite in the indictment are not all the documents that they seized. So there are, there are some documents that are de- they're dealing with in this case that they have that they have not made a part of any court case yet. One spe- bit of speculation is that they're saving those that those might have re- relate to Bedmin- Bedminster or they might they might re- relate to some other venue that would allow them to file charges in a different jurisdiction okay. than South Florida. But do you guys see how none of this is going to change the opinion of 70 million people? It's papers in cardboard boxes that are at his house, but they should be somewhere else. At its most basic level, what's happened here? We don't have proof that anybody's capitalized on it or that he sold it. Uh, you can see how, how not only has he been able to raise money on this, but the gap between him and Joe Biden has grown in the last few weeks. The gap between him and Ron DeSantis has grown in the last few weeks. In a way, as much as he would protest all of this unfair treatment, this witch hunt, this is the best thing that's happened to his campaign. It's put more distance between him and the other guys, and the money's pouring in. We've seen this for the last two years, really. Yeah, like there's, a, yeah. there's a martyrdom effect of all of this, and I think it deepens uh, his supporters' feeling that Trump must be the front runner or else this wouldn't be happening to him and it's being uh it's being fomented by his political opponents and you see this that this this isn't a uniquely american phenomenon right this happens all over the world the real danger here is things like what john cass said the other day eric zorn isn't here but he pointed it out Cass wrote, because it was Biden who ordered that his chief political rival, former Republican President Donald Trump, be criminally indicted in hopes of removing him as a political candidate in the 2024 election. Isn't that election interference? Isn't that what third world nations do to their politics? That's John Cass, who was yeah, the as, page two uh, columnist for the Tribune for years. As, as as a former editor of John Cass for years, I edited Cass when I was at the Tribune. I'll say that's an idiotic statement. 
That's just that's just it's I'm sorry, that's idiotic. That means that any criminal who committed any crime could immediately announce for that they're running for office and nobody could uh, could prosecute them for the crime. It's I mean, did he did the guy commit the crime? Did he do things that caused the prosecutors to say we have to charge this person with a crime? Yes. That's really should be the only issue. If you really are going to have a government or a society in which uh, you, you try to try to you know, make everyone no one exempt from the law. So, so I just don't buy that. Also, also what Cass says in there is not true that, you know, Biden ordered Trump charged. Now, now that's the thing that bothers me the most about that sentence. Well, I mean, and, and we'll get you know, examine that a little bit. So. Yes, Biden uh, named Merrick Garland as Attorney General, and yes, Merrick Garland named uh, you know Jack Smith as uh, Special Counsel. So, yes, it's in the Biden administration, and yes, ultimately Biden is responsible. But according to what the White House says, believe him or not, Biden and, and his people found out about the indictment when everyone else did. You know that they did not get any kind of back channel. Uh, notification of that and so i mean it, it's just self-simplifying it and it's turning and, and it's an attempt to turn it into a banana republic uh, thing when it's not to say that you know biden is ordered his uh his opponent to be arrested suppose the evidence were more damning or more apparent to somebody i mean i don't know what the critical mass is to say okay we need to do this for some people but i mean then how, how does justice work? The president's not going to try the case. The attorney general's not going to try the case. So then they get a special prosecutor. Do you need the special prosecutor to appoint another special prosecutor? How much distance do we have to create from the administration in power to finally say, okay, this is insulated from any interference? Cass said it was Biden who ordered his chief political rival, former President Trump, be criminally indicted. Is is that even true? But if nothing else, you've got a grand jury, at least right. a simple majority of those people said there's enough evidence. I know the bar is very low at a grand jury. But very low. Yeah. It's so, the old, the old, what they say about indicting a ham sandwich. Yeah. And it's, it's a the grand jury system is kind of a throwback and, you know, not that good because because it doesn't really push back very often at all. So that's why I didn't even go there. You uh, know, as, as far, because. I think that ultimately uh, the special counsel is responsible for this. If this is not enough evidence for you to think that Donald Trump lied, took documents he wasn't supposed to have, lied to uh, uh, federal authorities about it, hid them, and he didn't, wasn't supposed to have them, and recklessly left them where where any number of people could have read them, I don't. I, I don't. I just don't think that you're evidence based as a human being. I don't. I, I, you. There is. You couldn't create enough evidence. He could go on national television and tell you he did it, and you'd say, "Oh, well, somebody made him say that." He's not really telling the truth. Some people just. I think what we have to face, and, and Fox News is a good example of this because Fox News was caught in the Dominion case lying knowingly. They knew they lied. And yet they didn't lose their audience because their audience likes to be lied to. They want to be lied to, and therefore they're going to be lied to. And and they're just, you know, I, I don't know what you do with people who are not evidence-based or not fact-based. And so you're never going to give them enough evidence to make them think that Trump is guilty. They love Trump, and, and that's it. That stops right there. It's been a bad week for Fox on this story anyway. <clears throat> At one point they claimed it was 
Melania, who had walked in to support her husband at the courthouse in Miami, it was somebody else who had a thin face and glasses. And then they had on their Chiron, the scroll underneath the split screen of Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Trump was speaking last night in Bedminster. President Biden was speaking at the very same time at the White House. So on the split screen, they had the two of them, and the scroll underneath said, wannabe dictator speaks at the White House after having his political rival arrested. Cass could have written that. Wannabe dictator speaks at the White House after having his political rival arrested. They have since said that this is being dealt with, and the Chiron was immediately taken down. Chirons always are. You know, I mean. <laughs> it's the life of a Chiron. Exactly. <laughs> You're not there very long. But they said that, okay, so they're tacitly saying that that was a mistake and somebody got their hand slapped. Brian Kilmeade, when he was introducing their coverage of the president, said, here now is the president of the United States. And that was deemed to be a slip of the tongue by the network as well. I had one thing to say about the, about the, the whole would want to be dictator thing. Go ahead. Is I think that Trump is a wannabe dictator, and and I, th- I can give you plenty of evidence for that, including the fact that he incited a mob to you know assault the Capitol, and that he he and his henchmen in, uh, arranged for fake electors to try to pretend to be real electors to keep him in office. That sounds like wannabe dictator behavior, but I think that the rhetoric on the right and the right is extremely good at propaganda. The rhetoric on the right is to accuse their opponents of exactly what they are, have been accused of. And and that's where you get the wannabe dictator thing. That's where, where you get, I mean, and I'm not even a Biden fan. I mean, I didn't want him to get the nomination you know, in the last election. Uh, I, I'm just, he's just, he doesn't do it for me. And, but. I, so, but he's, I also don't think he, I think he's a moderate Democrat. I think he's kind of a traditional moderate Democrat. And I don't, and the fact, the idea of demonizing him and turning him into, you know, some sort of, you know, Marxist, you know, who's trying to, you know, turn all your children trans is, is, is just crazy talk that, uh, that it's, you know, it's just propaganda. And, 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 and it just disappoints me to see, with the rhetoric going that over the top. And it also scares me because it's probably fairly effective. And, and the, what extremists try to do is to deem so demonize the other side that the extremists conduct no longer gets analyzed that, that whatever the extremists do is perfectly fine because the people they're against are even worse. And I, I think we have that kind of level of really high rhetoric that's just just corrosive for um, our democracy. You do hope that the the courtroom though will be a different arena, right? That justice will prevail. Whatever it is, justice will prevail. I I do think justice has every opportunity here. I mean, even with Alien Cannon. I mean, you know, again, I, you know, I I think that judges who want to stay judges will try to act like judges. That's the thing. You know, you you get this whole you know, when Lindsey Graham said uh, just today, he said, if there's any charges in this Jan- January 6th thing against Trump, uh, the re- Republicans will be infuriated because they know that if it's filed in Washington, D.C., that they couldn't possibly get a fair jury in, in Washington, D.C. 
And, and, and I, I thought that that was a complete repudiation of our judicial system and of the, I just thought, very concept of a jury of your peers. And, and, and I don't think it was a mistake. I don't think it was an accident that he said that about an area of the country that is, you know, is half black. I think he did, that he thinks that, that D.C. would be hostile to Republicans. And, you know, they probably didn't vote for Republicans, most of them. But what I'm saying is that, that even in a deep red part of the country and like the Florida, if they ever get to, you know, to this this thing to a to a courthouse, the the documents case. You know, those jurors, I think, take their their job seriously. And they when they're sitting in a room with 11 other jurors and they're talking things over, I don't think they're talking about their Trump hats or or I think they're trying to do a really uh, fair, good job, mostly. And I give them credit for doing that, I, including the Republicans among them. I think that they, I think that Americans still, unlike Lindsey Graham, Americans <laughs> still want to believe in their judicial system. Yeah. And and I give them the benefit of the doubt. I, I trust them to, to try to do a fair job. Boy, if one of those people, though, that I saw in front of the courthouse yesterday in Miami as a juror, maybe the attorney interview weeds them out. But some of those people you think are so rock solid in their faith in Donald Trump that they would never. I mean, they know the evidence. They saw what you and I saw. They could have read what you and I read. The, on a, just on a personal basis, I feel sorry for those people. I, I mean, I'm scared of those people because I think they're endangering my democracy and the future of my grandchildren. So so I don't like those people. But I feel really bad for them in a way because Donald Trump doesn't give a crap about them. He he the, he does not care. They are like flies on the wall to him. He, 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 he doesn't care what happens to them, yet they think that everything is wrapped up in him it's it's just that the imbalance in, in in that relationship is just stunning brandon johnson the mayor of chicago do i understand correctly now has granted the same personal leave to cps employees as the rest of the city employees and it's a pretty generous thing that they didn't have to win at the next negotiation over a contract he simply said you should have this what how many weeks is it? is it 12 weeks 12 weeks paid parental leave which i don't think anyone would argue with the fact that 12 weeks paid parental leave is awesome for people who get 12 weeks of paid parental leave <laughs> i think the legitimate criticism of that is the fact that it wasn't bargained over and there's a give and take that there needs to be on both sides of the government and government employees, government representing voters, uh, people outside of government and government employees rep represented by unions that only care about government employees. Um, this wasn't something that was bargained over. This was a giveaway to his biggest campaign donor. It costs a lot of money. And whether you think that that's a good idea for all CPS employees to have that or not, that process is really problematic and I think flies in the face of like what you would expect from a representative of, you know, that the taxpayers of the city. So it, it was very concerning. And uh, yeah, I, I, it is, it was a, it was a thank you for getting him into office. Yeah. And with no, I thought with about no, you when this went down because yeah. I thought you'd say something just like that. And it certainly <laughs> looks like that maybe because it is that, but, but, but he said 
this shouldn't be something you have to fight over. Other Chicago City employees get this. You should have this. That you don't doesn't mean I should hold it against you and then grant you something you should have had all along at the next bargaining table while I extract something for me. It should be yours. He just gave them what they should naturally have. There's other things that you might want to change about the nature of Chicago public schools that the Chicago Teachers Union may not want. So that's the nature of bargaining is that you have, for example, the fact that all employees are required to live in the city of Chicago, right? The Chicago, a lot of Chicago public school employees would rather live just outside the boundaries or live closer to the schools where they work, but not necessarily in the city of Chicago. The Chicago Teachers Union has a vested interest in not bargaining for that because they lose a lot of their political power in city elections. That's an example of where there's a mismatch between what the union might want and what rank and file employees might want. And the purpose of the bargaining process is to say, if even if you're Brandon Johnson, you think, listen, everybody in CPS deserves 12 weeks of paid leave. There might be other things you might want to change that the union doesn't necessarily want that you should bargain on behalf of all Chicagoans, of all public schools, parents and students, and even in rank and file, te- on behalf of rank and file teachers. Yeah, that's an interesting with point. Leadership. Yeah. yeah. And it's a tit for tat. It's, it's not a, and, and a good way to think about this is imagine if it was the other way around. Imagine if the mayor came in and said, guess what? You guys don't get 12 weeks of paid parental leave. You get zero and I'm not bargaining for it. Imagine what CTU would say about that. It's why didn't you bargain for that? CTU was was complaining that the uh, the survey of whether T- CPS employees were vaccinated, that CPS was ask- asking employees to take, that that was not bargained for. Right. That was during COVID. That was when we were deciding whether schools uh, should open or not. So when you get something, we don't have to go through the bargaining process. Uh, but when you ask for something, oh, that's insane. Why would you not put that through the bargaining process? It's just a total imbalance of, of power. And this is something Lori Lightfoot could have taken care of, too, if she saw the imbalance and thought what's right is right. We should give it to him. She never did that, right? I, that clearly wasn't bargained for under Lightfoot. She could have just given it away. Well, that's what I'm saying. Uh, but she, she chose not to, maybe maybe for that reason down the road. Don't they have a short they have a shorter work year? I mean, the, the, because of the, of the summer? <laughs> I mean... Well, I, I, what I'm saying is, 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 aren't they inherently different from the rest of uh, city employees? Is if they are, as far as their work rules, then they shouldn't. Then, you, then uh, to me, making a sweeping judgment that everyone else gets it so they get it too doesn't make sense. So I, I would have to say that. I also feel like um, uh, I think there's a pretty good point that you that that's the kind of thing that you would be happy to give away, but you'd want to give it away at the bargaining table get so you get something else. Yeah, so you get something for it, and and I've always thought I've thought with uh, Brandon Johnson uh, that it would it would the real test for him would be when he has to do something that uh, that displeases his core supporters, you know that that where he's got to really kind of bring the hammer down on people who are naturally his core supporters, and and any leader in a in a big urban area is going to run into those situations where they have to they have to do what they think is right make an unpopular decision that hurts their supporters. And uh, that, to me, is the test of a leader, is when they can do that. And so the, I don't think that point has come yet, but it's going to. I mean, it's going to, and, he, and he's either going to not do what's right in order to, you know, to uh, to please his supporters, or he's going to you know, make an unpopular decision to make, and tick them off. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so that, that 
point is still has to come, but it, but he better be he better be equipped to do that. I mean, it, this is was one of the main things that people were worried about when he was running for office is that he was just going to be kowtowing to the CTU too much. Now, I my personal opinion was that I would rather see somebody uh, be favorable to CTU than to the police union because I'm not I think the Chicago Police Union is a big problem in the city. Um, and so, and it almost, it almost came down to that. If you wanted to like totally oversimplify the mayoral election, it was, you know, Brandon Johnson and the CTU versus Vallis and the, and the police union and Brandon Johnson won. So, uh, I think that that said something, but he's, he better be able to, uh, he better be willing to, uh, you know, to not please the CTU all the time. And I think uh, a thought experiment to, to like chew on the other foot, imagine, Paul Vallis is elected mayor, and within a few weeks, uh, the every police officer gets, you know, 24 weeks of unpaid leave, right? And he doesn't go through the bargaining process to do that. People would be rightly up in arms saying, there's so much that needs to be reformed about our police department. Why? That's, maybe they deserve this, but why would you not bargain for it when there's a lot of other interests at play, mm. not just you know, supporters of your campaign. No, I can't disagree with you there. By the way, Mark, you're probably in trouble now on this podcast because you said that teachers don't work all year round. And that gets a lot of people in trouble when they say that. I'm totally pro teacher. My older daughter is a teacher and I'm really proud of her. Um, But it's, but I mean, the way I understand it, you're not required to work in the summer unless you, unless you want to and you get paid extra for it. I don't know what CT, I don't know the city rules. My daughter teaches out in the suburbs. My son works for CPS and he doesn't have, he's not working this summer. <laughs> he's not getting paid this summer. So, so why would people, so why would anyone be uh, ticked off about that? Because teachers work really hard. And those oh, of boy. you people who say that they just go to school hours and they get Christmas vacation yeah. and summer off, you don't know how hard it is. They work all year. You've never heard that argument or conversation? Oh, yeah, yeah, but I, and I believe they work They work really hard, and they buy their own, some of their own supplies, and they work. Yeah. I know my daughter and her colleagues, they work on the weekends sometimes, and they work at night, and they go to events, and, you know, no, I, I, don't, I don't think – being a teacher is a hard job. Plus, you deal with picked-off <laughs> parents. It's not – I mean, what my daughter always says is that you know is that she's there for the kids, and if it were if the kid it wasn't for the kids, she's you know the administration and the parents and everything like that, you know that's part of the job. But if the kids are the pleasure and and the reason that she's in it, yeah, yeah, and and, and you know so I, I love teachers. I, I and I and I I never understand why we don't have more respect for teachers. I mean, I, I, every. All of us, I think, can think of a teacher in our youth who made a real difference in our lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Who, really, who, who really, for me, it was a teacher who, like, who called my BS. Who was, you know, I was always good in school and always, you know, wrote really well, and everyone just gave me an A, and that was it. And this one teacher one time said, "said What is this? This is this is not very good. This is you have written a bunch of words, but they're not. I mean, really, just took me, just took me down, and here I am." you know, 40, 50 years later, uh, remembering it. And it made a difference. So, I mean, I have a great respect for teachers, but that doesn't mean that they need to get, you know, that they need to get, you know, a, a big, you know, bouquet just because a new guy got elected. That's an interesting way to put it. Interestingly, my son, who works for Chicago Public Schools, doesn't like the kids, but he loves the administrators and parents <laughs> and loves lo- loves getting into disciplinary issues and rules and procedures. You know, John, but, but 
in school, weren't you in school sometimes when you wondered, there were certain teachers who you really thought did not like the kids? I oh, mean, sure. Yeah. I, 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 that, that always blew me away. I, I never understood. Why would you become a teacher if you didn't like the kids? But they were, but I always ran across some teachers who you just got the, the, the vibe that the te- they thought the kids were the problem in school. I think that that hurts uh, the teaching profession and other teachers in the workplace as much as children, because I don't, I'm sure you guys have worked in work environments where there's people who are terrible and somehow keep their job. It demoralizes everybody. It affects the work product of everybody. And a good example of something you might want to trade or reform for 12 weeks of paid parental leave would be something around disciplinary procedures or reviews or, you know, any of these things that are extreme, you know, third rail things for the Chicago Teachers Union. Maybe those are some of the kinds of things that would benefit all teachers that you would want to discuss at the bargaining table for and something like that. Aren't this. most school administrators teachers to begin with? You know who I feel sorry for sometimes or I think has a really hard job is the school superintendent. And I know they get a lot of money and a lot of them retire with great packages but uh whenever i go to an event i was at a i went over to the local high school and i was watching um the boys play baseball on one field and the girls play softball on another field and i think it was like five or six o'clock on a friday and there was the superintendent walking around you know just being part of that scene and i thought this is a guy who may want to go home (laughs) this kid isn't out on the field it was just parents watching the games you know but no there was the superintendent there he's at the basketball games on a tuesday night at nine o'clock austin it's 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 a tough thing if you're uh, for a union to be in that situation i understand your point it cuts both ways because you can have a situation where if you make disciplinary procedures too easy too easy to fire teachers you might get you know some retribution on somebody who just kind of said one thing bad to the mm-hmm, principal, mm-hmm. whatever, or or they get fired so that the principal's friend can get in. I mean, they, you want to avoid abuses, but at the same time, you're right. You don't want to protect incompetent or just nasty teachers. So I mean, it, it it's tough. I don't. There's it's it's not doesn't go one way or the other. I, I think that it's in the city of Chicago. I think I can understand why some people think that the CTU is. Is too much of a kind of a polit- political entity, as opposed to a just a traditional workers union, and and you know that that may well be true, but you know it is a city in which uh, in which clout is respected and very little else is. Speaking of Bruce uh, of uh, Paul Vallis, Vallis is now working with your organization, the Illinois Policy Institute. I don't know if he's working with you guys or. For- for you guys is is he on the payroll what's his role we, there? Do you we know? just announced paul on what was it monday mm-hmm. as a new uh, senior policy advisor for the illinois policy institute i think it's a great match his campaign was really not a partisan campaign in any way it was not about one party versus another i guess the race is officially nonpartisan. so even if he wanted to make it that he could he couldn't right but uh really ran on issues and he's an issues guy and he's a policy wonk guy, and he has deep expertise on the issues that we really care about, the Illinois Policy Institute, and he really ran on those, um, whether it was on uh, on a reasonable approach to public safety or on a reasonable approach to budgeting, uh, or especially, as he has done for you know the last 30 years of his career, being such a vocal proponent of the right of every child to choose the school that's best for them. And uh, he has serious expertise on those matters. And I think I, I'm really happy that he joined forces with the, the Institute because I think his voice is an important one for the future of the city of Chicago. And after all, the man got 
what, 47 and a half, 48 percent of the vote. So um, he brought together a really interesting coalition of Chicagoans who care about these kinds of issues. Your organization, the Illinois Policy Institute, is a right-leaning one. And one of the charges against him in the election was, well, you're really a Republican. You just say you're a Democrat. Um, and now, lo and behold, he's working for you guys. Am I to make a, anything of that relationship now or the confirmation of that? I think it's about the issues. I mean, even in his statement, he's, you know, he's Paul is a lifelong Democrat. That is absolutely true. And I think his party <laughs> has moved away. I think his party has moved away from him a lot more than he has moved away from the party. Uh, I, I really believe that to be true. And again, it's like this guy cares about the issues that we care about. And I think it's a misperception about the Illinois Policy Institute that's like, you know, it's it's fighting for right wing type of issues because we make Republicans as mad as Democrats. We make Republicans mad when we talk about police accountability. We make Republicans mad when we talk about budgets that pass that are unbalanced or that are not fixing the pension problem. There was a Republican state representative that challenged one of our policy researchers to a fist fight because he didn't like how he was framing up the budget. Uh, we really, really care about issues. We care about growing Illinois and making it a great place to live, to thrive, to uh, grow a business, to raise a family. And we will work with anyone who shares those ideas, regardless of whether they say they are representative of a particular political party. You may make Republicans angry, but I'll bet you make Democrats angrier. I mean, it depends just, on which ones. <laughs> well, I know, but well, yeah, if it's. Rob Blagojevich as a Democrat, that's different. I'm just, I mean, there are a lot of different, yes, there are a lot of different people with different stripes that call themselves Republicans and Democrats, but but yeah, it was really interesting, John, I don't know if, you, if you're on Twitter or not, but in Austin, I don't know whether you saw this, but as soon as that was announced, you know, all the you know all the Democrats or the left wing leaning people were, aha, he finally declared himself to be. He Republican. admitted it. Yeah, it was. Oh, it was. It was. It was actually kind of funny, just how quickly just everyone jumped up and said, "Aha!" But do you think this is true about most Illinoisans? Democrats have been running the state forever, and most Illinoisans are not happy with how the state is run. I'm one of these people who would like to see some sort of sea change in how our state is run. And I don't know if that makes me wish more Republicans were elected, but I'm not happy with the job that the Democrats have been doing. It depends who you're talking. Are you talking, are you talking about Madigan Democrats or are you talking about Prisker Democrats? I'm sure there's, I think a, there's difference. a big difference. Okay. I think there's an enormous difference. <laughs> and, and, and yeah, I mean, I sure know that uh, a legislature run by Mike Madigan was a, was a real problem in this state. I mean, it's, it, 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 according to the feds, it was a criminal problem. So, um, that, yeah, that needs to be fixed. I, I guess the question whether the party of Darren Bailey is the party to fix it. Boy, talk about the party going one direction and the candidate going yeah. another. He got whooped in the primary, um, so or, or in the general election. He was able to win in a primary because he was so extreme and had a zillion dollars behind him. But clearly that's not what Illinois wanted. Uh, that, that doesn't play in Illinois, does it, Austin? You have to think about the... the Fixing Illinois is about getting the wrong people to do the right thing. And <laughs> Illinois policy for a long time drew attention to Mike Madigan and what was clearly corruption, what was clearly an abuse of power, and what was clearly uh, doing harm to the people of the state. And I personally was called in the tank for the right wing all the time 
all of us were personally attacked because we just hate Democrats and we want to, you know, take everybody's rights away and like all this crazy stuff because we were holding power to account uh, in a very effective way. And that's the same thing that's now happening with CTU, where it's like, this is the new political machine in our state, and it does not have the best interests of all the people in the state um, in mind. It has political power, and, a, and unlike Madigan, a very extreme ideology that it's also pushing. So uh, we will continue to hold that power to account and continue to tell people what the consequences of that power are. Now, in some cases, would it be better to vote for a Republican candidate than a, a Democrat to get them out of office and to hold them to account and to change things? Absolutely. In some cases, it might be better to vote for a Democrat to get that person out of office. It, it depends. And it actually, it, it frankly doesn't matter to me. It's about change it, holding power to account and making sure that political machines aren't running the state. Yeah, but, but beyond cor- corruption, uh, which I mean, that, you make a great point there, and I completely agree with it. But beyond corruption, there is there are policy issues to be dealt with. There's a, the abortion issue, for example, and there and there you have a, a clear majority of the uh, residents of Illinois wanting uh, abortion rights, and you have a Republican Party that doesn't, and you have a Democratic Party that does. So I mean, so on on, on some really distinct and meaningful policy issues. Uh, I think you you have uh, a, you have a Democratic Party that is more in line with what the majority of the people of the state uh, want, and that's that is totally separate from the fact that the Mike Madigan machine was uh, you know just a, a pox on the on Illinois politics for a quarter of a century. You mentioned Rob Blagojevich, Eric Zorn, who normally is on this panel. Uh, mentioned that at the state capitol, when when Bruce Rauner returned to the capitol this week to unveil his portrait and then made some self-deprecating remarks about it, and also said, well, not all the governors are in jail, which I don't know how funny that was or appropriate that was, but he said it. Blagojevich's twice-elected portrait does not hang in the state capitol. I guess by law, did the legislature not pass something that said that it will not hang in the capitol? Eric asked people how they feel about that. We did two in our news click, and it was 50-50. Half of our people said, whatever you make of Blagojevich, he was our twice-elected governor. His picture should hang in the capitol. Austin, go. Should it hang there? Ah. I feel like I'm going to discover what my answer is in this conversation, because on one hand, you know, this is like the statues debate, right? Like uh, these people are an important part of history. Is it good that they are uh, out in the open so that people can learn about them and they're in some kind of prominent place? On the other hand, by hanging up a portrait or by making a statue, you are implicitly honoring this person's deeds and their life and what they stood for and all these Mm -hmm. things. And by doing so, are you... Um, setting a terrible example for people uh, in how they conduct themselves, right? So, I mean, honestly, the best thing to do in Illinois when it comes to honoring political figures would be to, if the odds are that they're not good, so just put a blanket ban, just everybody, <laughs> nobody gets anything. Like nobody's no getting portraits. Nobody gets pizza, right? Like you, <laughs> we're turning this car around. Like nobody gets any statues. Nobody gets any plaques. It's like, there's been too much. We've gotten burned too many times. So let's just assume like 
the worst. That's what, I guess that's what my opinion is. No, no more portraits. You ruin it for everybody, Rod. Yeah. Three governors that preceded him, the, the three most recently that preceded him who did go to jail, do have their portraits hanging there. Yeah. That's and that seems silly to me. I mean, of course, Bogovich was arising out of official duties, but that's a that's a perfect example of this. It's like there's some w- weird line that you can cross. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, Ryan was official duties, but not as governor. Right. Right. But um, but I, I guess my view of it would be that I think they should all hang there, but I think they should have you know little you know one or two sentence explainers under them. And that would be the place to put them in context, in historical context. You know, you could say, you know, positive things for governors who did things positively. But that's right there. You could say, you know, was uh, Rob Blagojevich was impeached because he tried to you know, sell a sentence. Yeah, right. There's no context now. I mean, it's a timeline that's incomplete. Better you have his timeline, his his two terms represented, his right. term and a half represented. And then tell us, by the way, this guy went to jail. Um, you know, th- that's why, uh, I mean, in th- that's why I'm not for melting down the Confederate general statues either. I mean, I, I don't think they need to necessarily be in prominent places like we think they're great or anything. But, uh, you know, putting them someplace where they can be viewed as historical works of art and can be explained why, what they were, why they were, to me is important. You know, I'm not, I'm not for like uh, destroying history. I'm just for putting it in context. I like the museum. It's a museum approach versus a, a hall of fame or right. a, or an honor. Right. That makes the most sense, I think. So then, uh, now that you've talked yourself out of or into, where, where are you then on this? I'm on the museum, the the hall of. We'll just call it shame. Governors. The hall of shame. The hall, <laughs> hall of fame. <laughs> hall of fame and shame. So wait, so uh, you you you're actually going to close that wing of the Capitol, I believe, is what you decided to do. That nobody gets a pizza. No, I think I I like Mark's approach, where if you add context, or maybe we could have like um like a big asterisk, <laughs> just a giant asterisk. You put a red line through it, like all the ones that are, maybe put bars up in front of his uh, superimpose some bars in front of it, or or you could have like a tomato kind of the, like it'd been thrown right. at the portrait, you know, <laughs> dripping off of the the framed picture. You could draw a mustache. Just one last thing, then. So, well, it was Alexei Janulius, wasn't it, who was behind the banning the book ban, and the governor signed that into law. Do I remember that correctly? That was. Is he the official librarian of the state of Illinois? So that was yeah. really his baby. And so Illinois now has sort of the distinction of being the state that bans book bans. That's a good thing, right? My initial reaction to the, that was, I don't even know if it's necessary. You know, that, that, that there's not a problem in the state so far. And, you know, why? I, I, I don't know. It just seemed like like just just letting people, you know, Letting librarians operate sounds like a good idea to me. It's 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 a little. I think it's a lot of sizzle with not much steak, uh, and we should obviously have as much information as possible available to the children of Illinois. Nobody disagrees, but it this isn't actually a ban on book bans. It just says if you're a library you have to sign this policy that i think is from the american library association or something of that sort that says you cannot remove books for quote partisan or doctrinal reasons right and but uh and and it cuts state funding if you the library doesn't sign this this thing but if the library doesn't enforce the policy of the thing there isn't a, a 
punishment. I guess somebody could maybe sue and you could maybe get some damages or something under state law. But um, I, I don't think it's actually going to change much in terms of how libraries are operating most of the state. I think it was, you know, kind of a, a big PR opportunity in a long march of J.B. Pritzker trying to cast himself in exact opposition to Ron DeSantis. And this is a thing Ron DeSantis is talking about. And so J.B. Pritzker is going to do the opposite thing and try to get a lot of media on mm. that. It did strike me as maybe a solution looking for a problem, but it was a solution that didn't bother me, so I wasn't against it. What really kind of shocked or bothered me about this kind of story was the poem that was read at Biden's inauguration was turned into a book, and that was banned from elementary school, from an elementary school in Florida. A parent who hadn't read the whole book but found a passage on two of the pages, which were innocuous, said, I think this is dangerous, kids shouldn't read it, kind of scrawled a signature at the end. It was about two sentences on a form, and that got that book removed from the shelves of the grade school at a school district in Florida. It was too easy. I do see why what we did in Illinois has a little cultural traction right now, because that is crazy that that poem that was read at Biden's inauguration would be deemed inappropriate for grade schoolers. That's just nuts, says me. Okay, Mark, it's always a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks for giving us some of your time and all of your thoughts today. Thanks for the invitation. And uh, Austin, good to see you too, my friend. Good to see you. Uh, We are produced by Ben Anderson and Pete Zimmerman. I'm John Williams, and we'll drop another pod on you next week. All right. Thanks, guys. Talk to you later. See ya. See ya. Subscribe to the Mincing Rascals podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Music Store. You can now also follow us on Spotify, or you can keep listening online at WGNRadio.com. 